Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 204th video cast, 194th podcast for the week ending September 14th, 2023, live from New York City this week. Uh, so want to share a couple quick photos, and then we'll get right down to it. First, uh, we had a pretty exciting weekend. That's Mimi with Alexa Mead. And for those of you who don't know Alexa Mead, she is a big deal in the art community. And she's just been wonderful to our daughters. They've, they've been, become good friends over the last year. Alexa did this installation on Fifth Avenue called Wonderland. And uh, I'm going to show you a few pictures and actually put both Mimi and Annabelle in some of her Instagram commercials. They had 100,000 visitors over 12 months to this installation. Pretty exciting stuff. I'll show you a couple quick pictures here. And then we'll... Uh, oh. That's other stuff. Okay, so here is the installation, um, one of the write-ups. So you can see she paints all the walls and the floors. It's literally like right on Fifth Avenue by all the boat boutiques. And she's famous for like painting people. Uh, there, her canvas, and she's done TED Talks, and she's been to the White House with uh, the Obama administration, and she's done stuff for, I think, David Blaine, and obviously Art Basel, and you walk through all these rooms and I guess people take pictures and selfies and that type of stuff. And we've been there two or three times and the girls did an art class there and did the commercials and she's just so talented. And uh, she called Mimi uh, you know, months after they last spoke and invited her to the closing. Uh, they'd been there for one year and it was closing and she had a phenomenal party. And while we were in for that, we went to the MoMA, and that's the uh, Roy, Roy Lichtenstein, Girl with Ball, 1961. And I, I've always liked him, by the way. And then this is Andy Warhol. Uh, that's the Gold Marilyn Monroe, 1962. I guess that was a good period for stuff that I like. Uh, this was the intrepid one. I thank Mike Lee, by the way. Uh, you know Mike from Fox Business. He's on all the time, mornings with Maria and Barney and the whole thing and Charles Payne. Uh, he invited me to this great uh, charity for veterans last night and a, a bunch of folks from Fox were there. Uh, this is the island on the uh, Intrepid. And for those of you who don't know the full story of the aircraft carrier Intrepid. It was launched in 1943, fought World War II, surviving five kamikaze attacks and one torpedo strike. Ship later served in the Cold War and in the Vietnam War. Intrepid also served as a NASA recovery vessel in the 1960s. Pretty exciting event last night. And this was a, uh, on the deck, this was a, I think it's called an A-12. Yeah. A12 Blackbird by Lockheed Martin. By the way, Lockheed's just sold off. We're starting to look at that one, by the way. Uh, so I did some, you know, firsthand due diligence, of course, uh, on their historic architecture. Uh, so that was that. And then, oh, so this is the stuff about Alexa Mead. And I would follow her, ladies and gentlemen. If you're into art, you know, Art Basel, wherever, uh, she, she's already a star, but she's going to be bigger and bigger and bigger. She's got talent and she knows how to do business and, you know, she's, she's, uh, going to do some great things. So 
so here's oh so here's how people take the photos our friends were in from Germany and uh, that's Mimi Annabelle and their friend Grace from Baden-Baden and there's Mimi and Annabelle so they paint literally everything all this stuff and uh, while I was there, of course, Fifth Avenue, I was doing some channel checks on vans because we have a small position in BF Corp. Uh, so, of course, I'm always mixing business with business. I mean, business with pleasure. Uh, and um, that's that. I think that's all the stuff that I had to share. And then this was going into Fox. If you're on my TikTok channel, Official Hedge Fund Tips, I always try to do a little back background of the studio that I'm entering. This was the back studio this week with Charles Payne. Uh, so you can check that out. And that, now on to the media. I want to thank Charles Payne, Kayla Aristivo, Nick Palazzo, and Hadia Khan for having me on Fox Business Monday to discuss uh, stock market earnings, Outlook, Goldilocks, Fed, uh, a couple picks, and more. Uh, you definitely want to check this out. So we're going to listen in quickly here. Pro-economic outlook because it really does matter, folks, uh, particularly for stock pickers. For instance, take a look at this table. This is a really important, interesting table. It gives you four economic conditions, right? You have Goldilocks, disinflation, reflation, and stagflation, and the assets that how they've appreciated. This, by the way, goes back to 1973, so it's pretty in-depth. And essentially, if you can figure out the economic backdrop, it helps you figure out where you want to position your portfolio. So with that in mind, I want to bring in our next guest, who's in a Goldilocks camp, right? Great Hill Capital Chairman Thomas Hayes. Thomas, so these four, you like Goldilocks right now. I think so. I think you're seeing the labor market is loosening up. Labor force participation is going up. New supply of labor. Employers are getting the upper hand. They don't have to pay as much. And you have earnings growth. So you have this combination, not too hot, not too cold, perfect Goldilocks scenario. That's why we've been talking a little bit to you about retail. Real estate investment trust does 18.1%. Obviously, though, you still want some exposure to the stock market. Uh, what's really interesting here is... And for all of them, to be quite frank with you, gold has only really outperformed during stagflation periods, and we get a lot of folks who want stagflation. Would re reflation be something? Because it feels like the market's been trading on a, for, a sort of reflation kind of uh, feel right yeah. now. Commodities are coming on. You can see the CRB just broke out big time, and equities are, of course, hanging in there. Yeah, reflation is a possibility in the sense, however, you need to keep in mind, M2 money supply is running $3 trillion above trend. So if you took the long-term trend line of M2 money supply and you look at the acceleration that we had post-COVID, uh, that, that's we've done a lot of reflation. Now it's the lagged effects. It's being offset by the tightening of the Fed. So it's that kind of push-pull, that perfect Goldilocks. Not too hot, not too cold. A lot of money supply, but a lot of tightening at the same time. Uh, can, I guess the only thing that can change that at this point would be a Fed misstep. That's correct. Yeah, if they overshoot. I think at this point, Nick Timoreos, the Wall Street Whisperer uh, at the Wall Street Journal, he was out over the week kind of setting the table that the Fed might be done. There's yeah. a shift in sentiment. And if that's the case, they can keep rates longer till maybe mid next year before they start cutting. That's the perfect environment. They'll still be tight. Earnings will still continue to grow. I wouldn't chase the indices like your earlier guest said, just chasing the high beta stocks. I'd look under the surface for those opportunities and the bargains. First, let's talk about earnings, though, because here, you know, we've had this big swoon in earnings, yeah. uh, a really big swoon in earnings, uh, earnings recession. Yeah. I think for the most part, everyone agrees it's over. The big debate is how quickly it will rebound. Right. I would say 85 to 90 percent of my guests think that the numbers right now are too high. Yeah. The earnings estimates are too high. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, they've been saying that for the last nine months. <laughs> and we've been out of the I was, 
been for the last nine years, right? <laughs> no question about it. Well, uh, actually, what you're seeing is earnings estimates continue to go up just in the last few weeks from 246 to 248 and change for next year. And if I told you, Charles, next quarter, and we're in this information vacuum the next two weeks before earnings season started, if I told you earnings were going to be plus 3.5% for the next quarter, would you be short the market? The answer is probably not because estimates are plus 0.5 and they've been running three percentage points too negative ahead of the quarters. All right, so we've got some, some ideas that you like here. Yeah. Uh, and, and they correlate with the first table, right? Yeah. Uh, this Goldie is an industry, industrial name, yeah. should do well. Stanley Black, Black & Decker. Vernado is interesting, though. Real Estate Investment Trust, yeah. you know, we're still talking about empty buildings, work from home. Yes. Uh, you know, are you concerned about this? I mean, yeah. does this add an element of risk to this? <laughs> I was on the network in March talking about Vernado. People looked at me like I had three heads. I mean, it was unbelievable. Commercial real estate, all you heard every single day was this is the worst absolute thing. This is just like the malls. If you remember, you had A-class malls like Simon Property Group. Mm -hmm. They did fine. B and C went out of business. The same is going to be the case with commercial real estate. You're going to see the lower end properties that haven't upgraded. They're going to be in bad locations. They're going to be in trouble. Vornado is the best buildings in the best city right. in the world. Park Avenue, Madison Avenue, right around this area. It's all Vornado, and I would never bet against Steve Roth. Okay, uh, less than 30 seconds to go. Sound like you were dissing my man Gary on the mega caps. Is this a mega cap Intel, or is this a, a forgotten uh, old dinosaur that, uh, that should be bought? You know me. I have a quality value tilt. I love this story because you get a free option on Gelsinger's plan to change, you know, with the fabs and with the high-end AI chips in the future. I'm not even pretending to, that that's going to happen. What we're focused on is their legacy business. They control the PC market. They control the server market. That troughed last quarter. The stock's up from 25 to 38. Uh, we think it can be a $50, $55 stock. And you get a free option if Gelsinger is right. I've always thought they were too <laughs> PC-centric. Yeah, well, it, well that, that business has troughed. Uh, you know, that's, that's, right. they've got 85% of the market there. Right. Uh, and as that reaccelerates, it's a 50-60. And uh, as Gelsinger moves into the next phase, you may have a free option on all-time highs. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Great stuff, Tom. Appreciate, it, appreciate it, All right, folks, coming up, are, the, are consumers tapped out? I mean, you know how I feel about it, but I can't wait to get Daniel DiMartino booth because she's been focused on this and corporate bankruptcies. Uh, but the Fed feeling pretty strong there. You just heard it from Thomas. They may be ready to take a victory lap. She's going to be with John Lonsky. We cannot wait to go over all the ex ex data that you need to understand to make important decisions. But first, gas prices are on the rise. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve, it's at the lowest point since 1983. I got an idea. Why don't we tap it again? I like to ask Victoria Coates, Coates whether she thinks that's a good idea or not. <laughs> And we're back. So that kind of gives you the broad overview. Also want to thank my buddy Rick for just buying me the most incredible ball mark. Uh, this goes on your golf hat. And uh, for those of you who've been following the podcast for a while, it says the secret to happiness is low expectations. And then you just pull off the ball mark, which is pretty cool. I often use that ahead of earnings season because estimates are so low, just like I was talking about with Charles. So that's timely. Also very excited to go down to Dallas this week to see my friends, Chris and Brian, uh, going to see the Cowboys play the Jets. So very excited uh, to see them and catch up with clients down there. Um, also, uh, thanks to, of course, Jacob Sonenshine, speaking about uh, up-and-coming talent. Uh, he can't paint 
people on the human canvas like uh, Alexa can, but Jacob writes some great articles over at Barron's. Want to thank him for including me in his article this week uh, on expectations for the markets. Also want to thank uh, Ruth Carson and David Finnerty for including their, uh, me in their article on emerging markets, China and the dollar. Also want to thank Ankika Biswas and Shristi Achar A for including me in their Reuters article. And finally, want to uh, thank uh, Nandam Madayam and Siddharth Kavale for including me there in their Reuters article today. So, got a lot of great stuff to cover today and quite a few Ask Me Anything questions. So that's what I want to spend a lot of time on. Um, you saw the ECB couple news uh, items before we get right down to the article of the week. Uh, Lagarde raised and basically said we're done for the ECB. And I think the message of the markets as we look at the S&P up 36 points, almost a full percent, the Dow up 325 points, almost a full percent. Uh, the message is if they're going to pause with as much inflation as they have, and we have 3% chance of a hike next week and a 35% chance of a hike in November, we're definitely pausing, i.e. done uh, for sure, which, uh, which is gonna get us all the things that we're looking to see happen, namely the, uh, namely the um, 10 year yield to, to have peaked out and um, uh, the dollar starting to weaken, which will help emerging market flows. So we just need to uh, see the languaging next week, and then we should start to uh, uh, help is coming for the emerging markets. This was an interesting article in Financial Times, the bull case for bonds. This is kind of what we've been talking about in the same case. He's talking about relative value. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about simple pension demand, people wanting to lock in uh, uh, assets uh, that can meet their long-term liabilities. The strike looks like it's going to happen this tonight. Uh, what's interesting is I think this guy is, um, if I have to be candid, I think he's an amateur because if I'm the automakers and this guy tries to do um, targeted uh, strikes, in other words, he thinks he's going to go in and say, pay me or I'm just going to hit your critical areas, but you keep paying all of my other people. Uh, and keep the lines running, even though they're useless to you when you don't have the key factories working, I think he's got another thing coming to him. Because if I'm, if I'm at the head of the uh, uh, automakers, I'm saying, if you're going to strike anywhere, we're going to just shut it down. And when you want to help us build cars again, and we don't have to throttle one area or the other area, we can talk. Because at the end of the day, this guy runs out of money in five weeks. So they've got five weeks of reserves. They're going to take these poor people uh, and pay them 500 bucks for five weeks until they run out. People are going to fall behind on their mortgage. Uh, and, um, you know, he's rejecting basically, I think it's a 26% pay raise right now. That's well above any inflation that we've had uh, in the last two years. And now inflation is coming down. So, look, I think the workers definitely should get raises. I think they should definitely get a, you know, a decent amount of what they're asking for. I think it's a compromise. I think the OEMs have actually put reasonable offers on the table, and hopefully, by the grace of God, they will come to some uh, amicable solution for both sides. Uh, but the, this concept where he thinks he's going to get away with shutting down a couple factories so all of his guys get paid 
and the OEMs get screwed because they can't produce cars unless all the factories are working, uh, I think is a fantasy. And uh, I think he's going to realize how business works pretty quickly. Um, moving along, retail sales rose again, bucking expectations, higher gas pr prices helped. So we'll go through the economic data later. Lennar's earnings are a read on housing. Demand for new homes is strong. And I think that speaks to demand for smaller new homes is strong related to the millennial thesis that we've gone through ad infinitum on our podcast video cast. Someone hasn't asked me anything about Carnival and Norwegian. Well, they just got upgraded today. And uh, let's see, this is over at Alex Brignell. Uh, and he upgrades them to uh, buy from neutral with targets of $23 and $25. Let's see where they're trading right now. CCL, $15. So yeah, there's some upside there. So he's taken a punt that these guys will be able to, there's equity value and that they'll be able to refinance their debt. I think that's a reasonable expectation based on where OIS spreads are right now. The credit markets are thawing, and we're going to talk about that in the article. So I think there's probably something to do there. I think you still have to size it based on the balance sheet. Here's an upgrade from Morgan Stanley for one of our holdings, Amazon, showing how sales could surge to $230. So we're excited about that. Some Chinese stocks are a real bargain now. Alibaba is one of them. Why is this article important? Because it's from... Rejma Kapadia, who has been one of the most uh, you know, pessimistic China, China journalists for some time. And she's been trying to be fair, you know, when there's good news, she reports good news. But it's very interesting to see her put this out and kind of make the case. And we're going to point to some things that are showing peaks of pessimism like we saw last fall before Alibaba doubled over the next 12 weeks. And uh, it's kind of nice to see Rejma come across on board and... Uh, uh, definitely check her out because she seems to be writing some really good balanced stuff now. Uh, a potential UAW strike has created an opportunity in auto parts stocks. Here's Al Root, classic guy, um, you know, along the lines of uh, Jacob Sonenshine, finding value where other people aren't. And he's saying that this is creating an opportunity for uh, auto parts suppliers, this strike that's brought them down. And we've seen um, uh, Cooper Standard come down on the basis of this strike. Uh, probably more than it need, needs to, but that's, gonna, that's creating an opportunity to pick up some shares for, for, new, uh, for new capital, which is pretty exciting. And then once we get this thing resolved, strikes don't last forever. We know it's not going more than five weeks when they, when they run out of money. Uh, and more likely than not, uh, we may find, that, find by the time this is done, maybe they've come to something. But my guess is they got to strike for a few days, panic over the weekend and, and come to something before Monday. Beijing throws China's housing market a bone, so they're doing more of these dribs and drabs. Intel rides a made in America wave to big stock gains, so we covered that with Charles. The interesting thing is, for those of you who've been with the podcast, you know we were pounding the table uh, at a $25.10 basis, not a $38, but now that's $38, people are listening. If I had pitched it at $25, they would have said, you know, oh, that, that it, just like when we were pitching Bernardo at $15 and $16 and $14. Uh, everyone looked at us like three heads. Now that it's up almost 100% uh, in a couple of months, people are uh, thinking about it a little differently. Uh, not a couple of months, six to nine, six months. Um, in, so that's that. Franklin Templeton, CEO, says China pessimism is overhyped. We agree. China stock traders load up on leverage with new rule relaxation. 
So they're doing everything except putting money directly in people's pockets. They might get away with doing the minimum, but more likely than not, they're gonna have to pull out the bazooka. Uh, Alibaba's new CEO elevates AI to the top priority in revamp. I think, I think Alibaba is the most undervalued, greatest upside AI play on the globe right now. Um, it's kind of nice to see them get rid of Daniel Zhang. I know he quote unquote resigned, but now what you have uh, with Sai and Eddie Wu is basically two of Jack Ma's proxies. And for those of you who know the story of Alibaba well, Jack Ma built the company. Uh, he created the growth. Sai uh, was there with him. These are his original partners that are now back in the game. They uh, helped execute the breakup plan, which was architected by Jack Ma. So basically, Jack Ma is pulling the strings once again, and we know what he's capable of, and we're along for the ride. We're just waiting for the whole of emerging market flows to happen on the basis of the Fed, the dollar, and off to the races. Um, so that's that. The band's back together. China actually showed, showed some healthy inflation finally, which means demand is coming back. It's not yet reported, but when you look at the data, that's what it's telling us. Morgan Stanley says it's a lonely bull recommending government bonds. It's interesting. Uh, this is not the folk, the, the gentleman who called the triple break putt and kept everyone out of the equity market and missed a 30% rally. This is someone on the other side of the bank. And um, uh, we agree, uh, certainly in the middle of the curve, not at the short end. And um, uh, so some people are coming around, some early um, early thinkers. Xi's tight control hamper, stronger response to China's slowdown. The reason I posted this article is because he's basically making the case like, hey, everyone else is panicking, and yet we're the only ones growing above 5%. What else do you want to talk about? And there's something to be said for that. There's a level of impatience because when you look at the top several um, uh, internet tech companies, last quarter earnings, revenues in aggregate up 7%, EBIT up 30%, and everyone's acting like the world is ending. Uh, I think they're just a little impatient. They went from three years of uh, being soldered into their apartments to, uh, to now being uh, out for six months. And it takes a little time to ramp up after the patient has a heart attack, but we're seeing it in the areas that count, which is the areas that were invested. Uh, namely uh, Alibaba, and their, their performance continues to improve. The stock price continues to stay the same. And uh, sooner or later, the, the arbitrage in this business, where you make money in this business is time arbitrage. When you can find those instances, which are few and far between, where the price in the market is so disconnected from the underlying fundamentals, growth, and cash generation, and then you're just hanging on. And some of them take off overnight, like Bornado, like Intel, uh, like many others, like you know the, the banks and the energy during the uh, COVID. Uh, even now you're seeing uh, City start to, to rip the last few days because Jane Frazier has figured out that her job is not, uh, uh, she's not a self-appointed leader for life like she thinks he is, which he's not either. Uh, she's got to actually bring that efficiency ratio down from 69 to 63. And she started knocking off heads this week. And now the stock is starting to, to, to fly. Um, even Disney's getting their stuff worked out. They came to this deal with uh, Charter. Uh, um, and uh, this is an interesting article from Shannon Thaler over at The Post. Disney execs reportedly think Bob Iger's endgame is to sell the company to Apple. Everyone knows he was great friends with Steve Jobs and through that by proxy. Uh, Tim Apple, as everyone knows him uh, as well. And Tim Cook, 
And um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more rhetoric around them doing something with ESPN. But at the end of the day, Disney's going to be fine just on its own. It's just working through these short-term kinks, which now seem to be uh, uh, working out. Here's a chart from Kimball Charting on the FXI. This is a normal type of wedge pattern that you see. It's always bounced at these levels. I think we're going to see the same thing. And then we're going to see a breakout of the wedge. And historically, when you have a wedge like this, you take the measured move from the bottom to the top, you add it to the breakout point, and that would put us well into new highs for the China FXI over time. But one step at a time, let's break through the wedge first. I know it's been a long wait, but we've effectively just done nothing for the last year going sideways. And, uh, and that's normal. Last week, we put out all of these indicators. They're now starting to move in our direction. So there was a ton of pessimism in the market. We said, look, <laughs> nothing's happening. Chillax, okay? You basically got a sideways consolidation like we had in April and May before a huge move in June. We had the same thing in July and August. Oh, and by the way, as of right now, we're back up to 450 right up here. So everyone literally was panicking over this and this nonsense in August. And now we're going to break back out, which is pretty exciting uh, just in time for the end of the year for everyone to play catch up. Our article of the week is inflated away stock market and sentiment results. And uh, this chart, first chart here is showing that governments are expected to solve their debt through inflation. 30% from the uh, Bank of America Fund Manager survey have that view. We agree. It's their only play. Uh, they've been playing coy because they wanted to get some handle on inflation so it wouldn't lead to a wage price spiral. They've been successful in doing that. So kudos. Uh, um, provided, as I said to Charles, that uh, Powell doesn't overstep, he can probably go down if he if he sticks it here and he's just backs off and let let's and actually lets inflation run 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 a little bit uh he can wind up bringing down debt to gdp over the next few years probably back below 100 and at the same time inflation run a little hot not have the wage price spiral uh he'll have more labor supply coming in because excess savings are being spent and uh, he, could, he could really go down as, uh, as a hero. So we'll see how he plays it. Um, the history is mixed, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, he's, he tends to overplay his hands, but, uh, but maybe he took a few lessons and he's gonna stick this, which uh, would be pretty, pretty astounding. Uh, yesterday, inf the inflation numbers came out as, as they did this morning, by the way. The good news, it did not change expectations for a pause for Fed hikes next week, November expectations, while recently as high as 50%, are now showing a more moderate 36% probability. That's probably come down a little bit this afternoon. In other words, we buy some time to get more data before the November meeting. The six-tenths of 1% gains month-on-month -month in headline inflation were largely attributable to food and energy, while shelter and used car prices continue to moderate. Those are going to be major disinflationary uh, factors moving forward. The left number is actual middle is estimates and right is last month so you can see uh core came in line year on year at 4.3 down from 4.7 that's a good thing cpi did tick up it was in line month on month but uh 10 basis points over expectations on the headline and you can see where that all came from which is gas prices largely a function of certain policies that we've had in place for the last uh four years three years uh that uh haven't served us well on that front 
Um, but the election's coming. They're going to release more from the strategic petroleum reserves. And uh, while the Saudis are in a position of strength and can continue to cut production, I don't think Russia is as in as position of strength as they think they are with the war that they started. Uh, they're going to have to be pumping uh, covertly or overtly. Uh, Iran, same thing. They're, they're in talks with the U.S. cutting deals. And Venezuela, we may be shocked with the level of production coming online with them shortly. Uh, so I wouldn't hold my breath. And we're moving into a period of seasonal weakness and uh, lessening demand. So, um, so that may be helped. But as headline CPI has had a short-term energy-induced counter-trend bounce, Core inflation, the Fed's focus continues to move in the right direction. So here's the little blip in headline. Here's core. Annual rate of change for the uh, core consumer price index is now down around just below 2.5%. In other words, almost in line with the Fed's quote-unquote target. Tim Areos from the Wall Street Journal was out, uh, a.k.a. the Fed whisperer, talking about August CPI, core goods on a 12-month basis, almost back to where it was before the pandemic. Negative uh, 1.9% three-month annualized. Housing is still a likely source of future disinflation. Uh, plus 4.5% a three-month annualized. And core services X housing is plus 2.2% three months annualized. So all this stuff is boating. A lot of room here uh, in housing. Uh, core goods is almost flatlining. So um, many positive developments. So further note is the fact that inflation expectations have moderated to levels seen pre-pandemic and more than a decade ago. So we're below these levels that we saw in 2012 to 2014 and below the levels from 2004 to 2007 as it relates to inflation expectations. This is the most important, quote, target for the Fed. Future expectations about price is, is what drives current behavior. Future expectations remain moderate. This is especially important as the bill is coming due for the excessive tightening. Not only can we not afford to refinance $7.6 trillion of government debt in the next year at current rate, rate levels, but hiking more becomes entirely out of the question. I think the ECB is figuring that out, and uh, certainly the Fed is aware of this at the moment. Uh, this is what's coming due over the next 12 months, and I would not be shocked at all if the Fed becomes a buyer of last resort and we see the balance sheet go up a little bit, and, uh, and maybe they take uh, rates down 25 or 50 basis points over the next 9 to 12 months. Uh, interest rates, uh, interest payments on national debts rose significantly. They're going to hit uh, over $500 billion. That's material. Spending on interest will exceed spending on a number of categories over the next decade. Uh, interest expense is expected to go to $1.5 trillion. Uh, spending for net interest is projected to outpace other spending, more than Social Security, more than Medicare. And net interest costs will account for almost 40% of federal revenues by 2053. Well, forget about 2053. Let's just talk about 2030, almost 20%, which is huge. And then um, now expected to uh, exceed the highs that we saw in the mid-80s. So with debt-to-GDP levels not seen since the late 40s, the only option is to, quote, inflate it away. As you can see in the top table of this article, institutional managers expect the Fed to do just that. The Fed should be hoping they can continue to keep inflation above trend without stoking expectations that it will remain above trend so they could get the best of both worlds. Inflate away this ratio by letting nominal GDP run hot while not causing a wage price spiral. They are delicately threading a needle to an extent not seen since the 1945 
1956 post-World War II period and uh, how appropriate we had the Intrepid at the beginning of the uh, um, podcast, Back to the Future, uh, both with debt and with uh, artillery. Now, if you look back then, we had debt to GDP at 119% in 1946. Uh, by 1956, we got it down to 61%. You say, wow, it's magic. No, it's inflation. So here we are in 2010, we had debt to GDP at 90. We're now at 123. Uh, I think um, maybe we've gotten down to 119. I'm not sure where we're going to end this year. But um, so how did debt to GDP drop from 119% to 61%? Just look at the inflation rate on average over the 10 years and you'll have your answer. The debt was inflated away. Here was inflation. They had 14%, 8%, then a negative year, then back up to 8%, then 2%. Uh, but in aggregate, they were willing to do that. And why do you know they were willing to do that? Because when you look at the um, three-month T-bill, you know, kind of you could reverse engineer the Fed funds rate or the actual Fed funds rate when it stopped being pinned at 1% in 1947, uh, you could see they still kept it all the way through uh, till the end of the 50s. They just slowly went from one up to 3.3%. And the T-bills uh, basically never went higher than 3.4%. So I do think that they're going to have to probably cut a little bit the back half of next year to let the inflate, especially if inflation starts to come down so that they can inflate away some of this debt. Um, otherwise, they really start to face deflation and other problems that uh, uh, will be a lot harder to solve. So the Fed is buying time in hopes they can do the same. They'll eventually have to bring rates down a bit to meet this objective. In the meantime, all they have is managing expectations with hawkish talk. Expect some of that next week, by the way, after they pause until they can start to moderate rates. The one problem they will not be able to solve without major pain and devastation is deflation if they stay too tight for too long. Based on the signaling we're seeing of late from the Fed whisperer Nick Timoreos, they know this too. And this was the article I referenced when I was on with Charles Payne on Fox. Uh, and this is from uh, four days ago, an important shift in the Fed officials rate stance is underway. Central bank is likely to pause rate increases in September and then take a harder look at whether more are needed and uh, more likely than not, they won't. Some notes ahead of the segment uh, with Charles, I would say the key things here, we wanted to talk more St Stanley Black and Decker. This is an interesting stock we own. By the way, none of this is advice. This is all opinion. We deal exclusively with accredited investors and qualified institutions, so we do not know your financial situation. Check with your financial advisor before you do anything. As always, click on terms at hedgefundtips.com. Uh, but this is a stock that fell 67% from its 2021 highs. Excuse me. Uh, yeah. And they do 85% of tools and outdoor. Think DeWalt, Stanley, Craftsman, i.e., uh, the IRA Inflation Reduction Act is going to have massive uh, infrastructure, hundreds of billions uh, come into the system. All that stuff is being built with their tools. That's a positive. Um, earnings and cash flow did get cut in half, uh, but revenues have held up. And it's the same story as many companies, even Intel, and we're in a lot of them, overordered and overhired to meet COVID demand and supply chain delays. Now that those kinks are coming out, they're working down inventories. The market's not giving them enough credit. Uh, they've already taken out um, $430 million of cost. They're going to take out $2 billion. They'll have a billion out by the end of the year, $2 billion by 2025. 
just divide that by the amount of shares, that's $13 a share to the bottom line. They trade at a historic 16 times multiple, which uh, puts the stock at 130 plus, uh, uh, you know, 60, 180, 190, whatever it is. And then uh, that's excluding their current earnings power. So, so they'd be taking out $13 a share in costs. At their peak in 2021, they traded at $209 on $10.85 of earnings. So if you... If you've got, you know, call it uh, seven or eight normalized, plus you take another 12 out, this thing could probably double earnings. The question is, does it get a 20 times multiple again, or does it go with its average 16 times? And that's why we like the stock. And we covered this one uh, last week or the week before. Uh, yeah, it had a move, but it's like when you zoom out, it's literally, in our view, just getting started. And um, some of these things, as I say, go right away. Uh, some of them take a little longer, but this is, you know, very much looks like coming out of the uh, uh, great financial crisis lows. You have these checkbacks, then you start to go, then you check back again for a couple of months before you work to new highs over the next year or two. And uh, that's a monster move. And uh, rinse, repeat over and over, same thing, boring companies, predictable cash flows, temporarily impaired on the operating table, sign me up, everyone's puking, we're adding. Uh, and, and our advantage is uh, not that we're extra brilliant, but we're extra patient and we play the time arbitrage game while others are getting on leverage because they want to catch the next $2 up or down and blowing themselves up. We're, we're not uh, de minimis leverage and we just wait and that gives us time for uh, uh, market value to match intrinsic value uh, on a normalized basis and we just do that over and over and over. That's our framework. Intel, we covered, it's kind of amazing how excited people get when I'm talking about it at $38, but when I was talking about it at $25, all you heard was crickets. And it's gonna be the exact same thing with Alibaba when we start talking about it at $160, $70 when it's ready for its next pullback. Uh, everyone's gonna be super excited. Now at $80, $90, uh, wherever we are today, I think we're up a couple pennies. Oh my God, we're actually green today. Uh, uh, you know, no one here. It's just crickets. No one, no one's interested. Cash flows keep going up. Earnings keep going up. Revenues, you can't give the thing away. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just hysterical. Uh, Vornado, again, <laughs> everyone's excited to talk about it at 25. Probably, it, it, by the way, same thing with Intel. Intel's probably going to go back to 30 again before it goes to 50 or so. And uh, everyone's going to get all excited here at, uh, you know, 28 uh, where the hell are we? $38. Probably goes back down to the low 30s. Everyone's like, oh my God, he was so wrong. No. <laughs> I own it from 25, number one. Number two, if it goes to 30 and I have new money, I'll buy, uh, maybe I'll buy more. We'll see. Uh, but I'll, you know, I'm a holder until 50 and then I'll see if his, his dream plan is, is going. If it's going, then I'll, I may hold on for new highs and beyond and, and buy the dream and it could be the next arm or uh, some type of NVIDIA or AMD high flyer. Uh, but if it's just a PC play at $60, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take a double plus in, uh, you know, less than a year and call it a day or, or no, hopefully a year and a day for heaven's sake. I, I don't want to give half of it. Uh, anyway, uh, VNO, same thesis that, that we had at 15. If you remember, I was on Fox and people were like, I can't believe you're talking, you know, like literally like I had three heads and here we are, um, you know, up a lot. So now we'll pull back to 20. People will worry about 
commercial real estate again, and then uh, before you go back up to 30, 35 plus, and then we'll just analyze. If it's trading at book value, you know, we'll probably be a seller when people get excited again. Uh, sentiment, uh, Bank of America published its fund manager survey on Tuesday. This is a very important document. Here were the free, four key points. By the way, thanks to my buddy, Adam, uh, for sending me all this stuff. Also, Zach sends me some great stuff. Uh, Rick, as you know, and, uh, and many others, very grateful for all that. Managers have only started to play catch up to retail traders who got uh, caught, who caught some of the rally off the October lows. So institutions, this light blue line, were lagging. Retail investors got some of it. Now they're playing catch up. But look, look at where they were playing catch up in 2009. The rally was just getting started. They're only halfway there. Uh, same thing with the, the 2020 rally. So they got a long way to go. And so does this market over the next few years. So just hang tight. Uh, sentiment is still in the crapper, which we love, down to great financial crisis low levels, down to COVID low levels. This is where you want to be buyers, not sellers. Uh, managers taking, expecting a weaker economy still, just like they were after the bottom in 2009, just like they were after the COVID bottom, after the market was already up 60%. Uh, inflation expectations are just turning, similar to great financial crisis. Um, and managers continue to take risk. Uh, at or near the low levels of COVID lows and the European debt crisis lows and the great financial crisis lows. But as you can see, similar type bottom, check back. Now we did that check back. Now we're up here. People still can't believe it. And you're breaking back out and no one, no one wants it. No one wants to be involved. Uh, and, uh, and they missed the whole boat. And, uh, but there are quite a few of you who have been smart enough that uh, um, number one have gotten in and number two are waiting to come in and we're just waiting for go here. If it's not tomorrow, it'll be sometime early next week. Uh, some of you have already funded, so you're good to go. The rest of you who have your accounts who haven't funded, I will email you when we're ready to go and you can just wire and we'll start to put that money to work. This is obviously great timing to do that. And then, um, as far as positioning, cash levels are coming down, but they're still elevated. So there's more upside to be had here. And whether, we, whether you go through all the indicators that we covered last week that were just starting to turn, now are turning. Um, this thing, the 10-day put call, the NDX 1% EMA, the Cohen high-low, the up-down on balance volume, the... Uh, McClellan stuff, et cetera, you can go through last week. Uh, it's all coming to bear as we anticipated. And um, everyone's out of emerging markets in the last 30 days. The last flush you saw like this was last September and October, and that was right before uh, Alibaba rallied, basically doubled into year end. So we'll see what if we get uh, a similar type of result. There are effectively no sellers left at this point. So, uh, which is exciting because the last time there were no sellers left, it had to go down to $58. This time there are no sellers left, it had to go down to $88. So we're making progress. <laughs> um, you know, next time it'll be, uh, after it goes to 180, it'll probably be in the 150s where there are no sellers left before it goes into the 200s. But uh, uh, you all can't see that yet. So borrow my glasses. But for now, just hang tight in, well, we're, we're doing that. So you do whatever you want to do. But uh, Bonds overweight. They're still stuck in T-bills. They can't, you can't give away REITs because everyone thinks yields are going to blow out when they're basically peaking. Um, same story over and over and over. So 
Uh, but this is the most important chart of the week, ladies and gentlemen, in my view. Pessimism on China reached levels not seen since fall of 2022 levels, just before Alibaba doubled from 60 to 120 in 12 weeks. So you can see here, this is China growth expectations back to lockdown lows. Um, and it's nowhere reflected in company earnings. Uh, it's ex actually telling the exact opposite story, but these are the opportunities that you get once every now and then. Um, and here we are even lower than the levels last fall before we got that, and the, pri the price is still higher. So this was the last time you got pessimism this low. Short China equities is the second most crowded trade. If it, if it had a greater market capitalization possibility, uh, and more people had mandates, it would probably be the most crowded trade. And who are the first buyers after you get a news catalyst are the short sellers who are panic buying. And this time will be no different. The key is what's going to be the catalyst. And the answer is we don't know yet. But my guess is it's going to be something related to the Fed uh, and the dollar. So outlook constructive, despite moderately disappointing inflation numbers yesterday, longer term treasuries held their lows from when that major manager announced publicly he was shorting at the exact low, completely shorting in the hole. You can go back to a couple of weeks ago, our article probably somewhere around the 21st when they made that announcement, maybe the 17th. Um, actually, I think it was the 17th, and then it had one last low, and, and now it, uh, it's put in the low. Yields have peaked. Uh, so we'll see if this follows through on the TLT, which would um, go a long way in, in having a lot of these theses play out. Credit markets are thawing after a heart attack in 2022. Bloomberg U.S. corporate high yield average option adjusted spread hit a new year-to-date low earlier this month. Those are things when you see when risk is coming back on. And the most important thing you see, which is a game changer, was the Arm Holdings IPO today, which is now trading up, I think, about uh, 16%. So they priced it right. Everyone is happy. They left a little money on the table, but not so much, and uh, they'll have a success. And then you're going to see a parade of this supply come out over the next 12 weeks. Risk appetite's going to come back. The game is going to be back on. PMIs are turning up, which could imply EPS estimates are still too low despite their recent ascendancy. And we think that's the case. We'll probably see this move up to 250 in coming weeks. It's at 248.58. We have a two-week information vacuum before earnings, which we discussed with, uh, with Charles. And then finally, sentiment, the AAII is neutral this week. The fear and greed is neutral. And the active investment managers are underweight, so they'll have to chase up the higher we push. Uh, we covered most of the Bank of America survey. Utilities earnings, top 30 weights estimates in the last 60 days are down 3.3%, uh, down 3.01%. Uh, but they're starting to bounce because they've absolutely collapsed. I think uh, these are going to trade alongside with REITs. REITs earnings, top 30 weights uh, are up uh, 2.35 for this year in the last 60 days, down 1.61 for next year. I'm guessing that's probably going to be 1. Yeah, pretty, pretty steady. Okay, so it's not one lumpy one. Um, and those things have absolutely been devastated. So just watch the 10 year. If you want to know what's going to happen with rates and utilities, they're going to trade with the 10 year. And by the way, this is one of those times while everyone's focused on re-steepening of the curve, that's, that's the wrong focus this time. For banks to rally, you actually need uh, the 10 year to rally because you want to see the marks on banks' portfolios move up. Uh, and when that happens, you're going to see a bid. In, so focus less on net interest margin for the next four to five months. Focus more on mark to market. 
Their mark to market will improve when TLT goes up uh, and yields compress. And we think that'll be in the coming, uh, hopefully next week it will start and then it will be confirmed as we move towards November and the probabilities of a November hike go down on the basis of data and necessity as they have to refinance $7 trillion of debt. Uh, data, we covered most of the inflation. The PPI uh, was in line month on month on the core and on the headline was a little hotter than expected. Same thing as yesterday. Uh, and that's again, again going to be uh, food and energy. So, um, you know, we're probably 12 months away from potentially a sensible energy policy in this country but we won't hold our breath on that front. I think more, more importantly, we've got some seasonality on the way um, uh, as it relates to the, the factors we discussed earlier. As we look to 2024, which sectors are gonna outperform the S&P in terms of earning growth, communication services, that's uh, Google. Okay, we own that. Uh, then information technology. So some of those are still beaten down. Consumer discretionary, no one wants to touch, yet you saw retail sales through the roof today. There's opportunity there. Healthcare, we still love biotech. Uh, that's also going to be a function of the Fed. Biotech and BABA are actually going to trade exactly the same. And probably you could overlay the 10-year, the, uh, the TLT. When TLT starts moving up, BABA and um, biotech are going to get bid. Uh, you'll see how that plays out. That doesn't make sense probably right now as you're listening to me, but just watch what happens and so on and so forth. Uh, moving along, we are at the Ask Me Anything questions and quite a few today, so let's get to it. Uh, Martin Crumlish asked, thanks. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, Derek. Okay, so this this guy's asking a 30-minute question on China stimulus. And the answer is it'll come when it'll come, and it may not be needed, and you just have to be patient. And if you're not patient, you shouldn't be in the sock. Um, it's that simple. Uh, as it relates to JT Investor, uh, CPS, okay. You, you notice the questions are always about stocks that are down in the short term and you know never about stocks that are up. So uh, perhaps the UAW strike is uh, priced in already. I mean, at 14.13, it's probably priced in already. We're, we're gonna find out tonight. Maybe we get a chance to buy it at 12 or 10, but uh, impact of protected labor's dispute on the business. Uh, consequences. Oh, yeah. Well, the good news about that is that the vast bulk of the great thing about Jeff Edwards is he got ahead in line of the union and got most, like probably 90% of his contracts renegotiated for more money before the UAW negotiation. So um you know if if he can't get the last 10 percent or whatever it is renegotiated because they say oh we had to pay the workers all this money it's not really a game changer as long as the volumes uh are there over time uh that that's then we benefit from the operating leverage and a five-week shutdown until the union runs out of money is not a not really a big deal the price the stock price might get smacked so that's a mark to market problem but i have the right type of partners i don't you know we don't at great hill capital we do not optimize for maximum AUM. 
we optimize for people we like and that we want to make money for and we enjoy talking with, spending time with, being partners with, and also have the same framework that we have, which is why it's a requirement that they listen to the podcast at least a couple of months before we even talk about investing. Uh, so my partners understand this. And you know, if Cooper Standard goes to $10 before it goes to $40, it's a non-issue because we're not on material leverage where, where it becomes an issue, whereas many people you know, get an idea and you know, it's like, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what was the saying? I think Peter Lynch said, he goes, you know, people will, will spend 20 minutes debating which can of soup to get at the supermarket to whether they can save five or 10 cents. And then on the bus on the way home, they'll hear, hear a stock tip and put their entire life savings without doing any research. And, um, and that's just a sad, sad state of affairs. People don't do their own work. They don't position correctly, but um, I don't accept those type of people as partners. So um, the key here is drown out the noise. We know what, what the cap is for the UAW. Their pocketbook runs dry in five or six weeks. Um, and more likely than not, everyone's incentivized. The, the administration can't screw the unions before the end of the year, so they'll probably find a way to funnel more money into the OEMs to get a deal done that looks like a win, uh, but doesn't cost the OEMs a lot more than everyone expects, and we'll be back off to the races. So uh, that's that. Good questions on both fronts. Stephen Frampton. Hi, thanks for the video cast as usual. Watch every week. I was wondering how, what you think about alternative asset managers like Brookfield, Blackstone, Apollo KKR, and alternative assets in general. What do you think of the asset class? And um, would you ever own an alt asset manager? Appreciate your patience in teaching us, Stephen Frampton. Uh, good question, Stephen. So, <laughs> uh, part of the reason I wouldn't buy an alternative investment manager i.e. private equity fund, uh, firm, rather, um, is the same reason I probably wouldn't buy a boutique investment bank. The problem with these entities is that they're made up of a lot of investment bankers. And investment bankers, um, you know, many are very smart and good people and mean well and all that stuff, but they have a different mindset they consciously or unconsciously extract value from productive enterprise, not dissimilar to the government. Um, and the owners are usually thought of as an afterthought versus a primary thought, which is why we made such a sizable investment in Cooper Standard at $5.50 is because management had a history of respecting equity, not diluting their shareholders, uh, a, a history of consistent ability to operate in normalized conditions. And um, uh, I generally don't get that um, empirical evidence when I study the Apollos, the KKRs, the, the Blackstones, of the world, those businesses are very good for the partners in the business. They take huge bonuses and huge payouts uh, and everything else, but the shareholders get the scraps. And um, the, the exception is, because you list Brookfield, Blackstone, Apollo, KKR, and they are getting cheap, so I have been looking at a few of them, but I would say probably the exception is 
Brookfield we've been taking a look at of late. And I think Brookfield is um, oddly going to trade um, with the 10-year as well uh, for a number of factors. But there's just not, not a material enough um, margin of safety where, you know, I, I need a double or triple. I don't see that necessarily happening in Apollo. Apollo's already up. Let's see, Blackstone, BX. I don't buy things that are up. I buy things when they don't want it. Blackstone, yeah, th this is not uh, KKR. Yeah, and then uh, what's the other one? Carlisle. I get CYL. No, it's not. I don't, I don't remember what Carlisle is. But anyway, let, let me type it in. Yeah, the, the answer to your question is they're good businesses, but the problem is, is they're good businesses for the operators, not the owners. There's a principal agent problem, uh, I find. And for if they were really impaired, I would buy them for a double, but they've already started to recover. So I'm going to just take a short-term pass with the exception of Brookfield, which we're looking into further. But uh, I like the thinking process. Uh, what are your thoughts that buying banks when low current situation is essentially risk-free as the government will always bail them out? Well, the government can bail out the bank and wipe out the equity. You saw it with Citibank during the great financial crisis, uh, effectively wiped out the equity. Uh, well, the big ones in particular. So Citi should be a big allocation for most investors. So I covered Citi with Charles. We like Citi. Citi's already starting to run this week. Uh, and we covered the reasons why. Actually, Charles, I covered that not this week, uh, last Friday I was on. So you should go back to that tape um, when I talked about that. And I've also talked about it on the podcast quite a few times. So welcome. You must be a new viewer. And we're very excited to have you on board as well. Grateful for our uh, older, uh, loyal, long-term viewers and grateful for our brand new viewers. And welcome to, to everyone. Fine, um, banks. Okay. Uh, Bill McGrew asks if we're still in biotech. And uh, Baba, yes, no change there. Adding where we can. Same thesis. It's all a function of uh, rates stop going up and they'll both trade the same way. Uh, then we've got James Runyon. Uh, what are your thoughts on utilities being a leading indicator for heightened volatility and that they've outperformed the S&P by 4.5% over the last week? That's normally true. Defenses pick up when the world is ending. Same with TLT, actually. However, um, this time it'll be slightly aberration because of your starting point. So here's XLU to the SBY. You can see the dramatic underperformance. But effectively, if you overlay the TLT, it trades alongside. So as the TLT or long bond gets bid, Utilities are going to trade up with them. And that's not necessarily a bad thing this time because it means rates are normalizing and uh, debt costs are going to come down. So I would say um, I like your framework and thinking, and, uh, and I'm just explaining why that may not be a bad thing. I, I do think utilities are going to go up. I think the TLT is going to go up, and I think REITs are going to go up. Uh, all the interest rate sensitives are going to go up. And... Uh, 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 counterintuitively, banks are going to go up because of the mark to markets as bonds go up and um, and risk is going to be on, 
going on as uh, cost of capital starts to come down, risk comes on, and that's when you get emerging markets, dollar week, and you get biotech, and, and you get those trades. Those are, um, at the moment, they're, they're basically highly correlated trades uh, that are going to work when this starts working, and they're going to work all at once. And that's what we've always said, and that's why we're in the tar time arbitrage business with, with very low leverage, so we can wait it through, because when it comes, it comes all at once, and it gets very, very exciting. And then the ask me anything questions go from 12 to zero <laughs> or just new new companies versus, uh, you know, 30 page questions about stuff we've discussed 100 times. It's just being patient through it and controlling your emotions. Um, all right. What are your thoughts about? OK, so that is Tila Tap. Bill McGrew. We got that. James Runyon. Got that. Justin Levins. Oh, this is a good one. Justin Levins. Warren Buffett famously hates EBITDA due to the possible implicit accounting chicanery. I noticed Cooper Standard reports earnings in terms of adjusted EBITDA. What's the reason for Cooper Standard reporting an adjusted EBITDA? Thanks so much. Huge fan of the podcast. Writing from Montana. Justin, you're spot on. We hate EBITDA too. As a matter of fact, we discussed that with, uh, um, uh, you know, we, we've made that known. The problem is, is when you're a turnaround situation, it's a complete different situation when you're an ongoing operating business. The reason they're reporting adjusted EBITDA and these BS metrics is because they don't have anything to show. The reason they don't have anything to show is because they're a business on high operating leverage, which cuts both ways, which is why the stock came down from $146 down to 550 where we bought it, it i think it even went lower down into the threes for a couple of minutes um uh and why it'll be able to go back up to 70 and beyond we think as they get back to normalized uh earnings as the volumes pick up so the answer to your question is they can report adjusted ebit all they want the only thing i pay attention to is cash uh and cash flow returns and they, their uh, guidance is to be cash flow positive this year and if they can do that, then they've got the time arbitrage business and they can just wait for the volumes to come back, whether they come back by 2024, 2025, 2026, it makes no difference uh, that you're going to see five, six, seven, eight dollars drop to the bottom line. And then you're talking a 10 to 20 times multiple. And that's where you get uh, not just a multi-bagger, which we already have, but a multi, 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 multi-bagger, which is what we're in this game for and why we were willing to assume that risk before they got refinanced on the basis that they would get refinanced, which did get refinanced, and they'll be able to refinance even lower, we think, in the next 12 to 18 months. Good question, though. Kevin uh, Martin, I've been tracking the radio broadcast and TV broadcast stocks for a while, hoping for an opportunity. I think I found some, but what are your thoughts on uh, GTN, Great Television, and iHeart? GTN is a Klarman deep value play, and iHeart is a Burry Miller value play. Um, okay, so... I've noticed these as well. Um, the first one um, I've done a lot of work on because there's another company I'm interested in that has related ownership. And I will say this. Um, there are more reasons for the stock being this low than just the fact that they're lumped into the um, television bucket 
Uh, and I wouldn't bet on this stock going up dramatically uh, in, in the short term. It looks like it wants to go up, and it may very well do that, but I, there are other factors at play, um, and I, I can't get into on this, that, that, that make me want this one. Uh, just Number one, it's not a great, great business, but um, I, I know more about this one than, um, I, I'm just a pass on it, that, that's what I would say iHeartRadio is um, I, I, there, there will be a day where gray television goes up a lot, but I, I don't think it's today. Let's just put it that way. Now, iHeart, um, my guess is you're going to have a major debt problem here because most of these radio businesses are highly levered, um, but you are also going to see a catalyst in political advertising in the next year as well as auto advertising which you're seeing on tv quite a bit with the incentives from the dealer from the uh original equipment manufacturers which is part of our thesis for cooper standard so let's just find ihrt uh, just to put a bow on gray on regular analysis, I think you could probably come to the conclusion it's worth owning. I think there are other factors that will probably delay you realizing that value that um, um, would would make me just want to pass on it in the short term, in my view. Um, okay, so IHRT. But I do like those mini monopolies of having kind of the local stations. It was the same thesis with Gannett Papers, but that, that quite, you know, Buffett had that idea and it didn't quite work out because the business was just in secular decline. Um, but there is enough margin of safety at the price that you would want to take a look, but, um, but we're not. All right, so iHeartRadio is losing a lot of money. What's their balance sheet look like? It's got $165 million of cash. It's got $5 billion of debt. It, um, it's generating some cash from operations, which is good, but their CapEx is high. And um, they paid back some debt, but they are free cash flow negative. This is not for me. This is a low quality business. I mean, I, I know what you're saying. It's down a lot. It's down from $28 to $3. Shouldn't I take a punt? Maybe, you know, if you want to take a trade up to $8 or $10. But this is, that's not what I would do with uh, my money or client money in, in any material way because, you know, you could have a double, you could have a zero. And to manage the risk, it has to be such a small position anyway, if you're being responsible, that it's not going to move the needle. So um, too low quality for me, but you may be right. I, I like your thinking. Uh, and, and anytime I'm just a pass, doesn't mean it won't work. It doesn't mean it won't go up. It just means it's not, doesn't fit our framework of where the odds are in our, our ability. Uh, the odd, The odds are in our favor and it's in our investing framework where we know the probabilities are high. And the only variable is going to be IRR. How quickly does it get to where we know the intrinsic value is? And here, 
I, you know, I have no way of knowing the intrinsic value because it's a really highly leveraged business that uh, there's no clear operating leverage coming in in the near term with pent up demand for radio advertising other than, yes, there's some TV, uh, there's some auto, there's some political, but I, I don't think the business is great enough that I'd want to bet on it long term. Um, okay, but good question, Kevin. Josh says, been listening to your podcast for a couple of years now. I'm always impressed how quickly you can analyze a company. Want to know what your take on cellular service providers is since they've been losing so much value, been looking into T because of heavy selling. Seems like their lead sheethead cables are the greatest concern. Are you currently watching any cellular service providers? We've covered this quite a few times in the last few weeks, um, Josh, but understandably, you know, it was August, so maybe you're on vacation uh, and had better things to do like playing golf. But actually, some of our August podcasts were like our, our some of our best ever. But um, uh, let's just see here. Yeah, so we we had said pass on um, AT and T. Like if you had to buy one, Verizon's better quality, uh, and we stand by that. If you put a gun to our head to buy one of them, we'd probably go with Verizon. Um, but we're not in love with the business. It's, you know, capital intensive, very competitive. Um, you know, and you're taking a lot of risk for a potential double. I don't, for a potential, for a potential double, I want it to be like a no brainer layup. And the only risk is how long does it take to get there? Does it do it right away in six or nine months? Or does it take two or three years, which affects my IRR and makes me a little bit angry, but it still works out in the long term and the other ones more than make up for it because the ones that realize in 12 or 13 months, I can take that money and put into new ones with higher IRRs to offset the ones that are taking longer than expected that have lower IRRs. Um, ben Williams. Thanks for great content. Was wondering if you could take a look at Carnival. Uh, believe they can recover from the COVID slump. So we saw that upgrade. I'm still uh, a little leery on the balance sheets for these, but um, yeah, it's interesting. They always upgrade it after the thing does like a, a double. Where were they at $10? Not interested. Now it shot up to $19. They put out the upgrade. So uh, I think this is going to work higher over time. I just don't like the risk reward because I'm playing for a double, maybe a triple, but I got real balance sheet risk uh, that it's not clear that the leverage is going to be so much more than it was in the last two years. It's like COVID got over. A lot of people booked a lot of cruises. What's the next wave of demand that's better than what they saw in the last couple of years when their cost of capital is going up? So again, it probably works. It's just not for me. Um, but I think your, your thinking is spot on to be paying attention to that type of opportunity. You just got to manage it by size. Uh, okay. Lars Lundstrom says, here's one I recently stumbled upon when researching about the semiconductor industry. Carl Zeiss MedTech, as the name suggests, are coming from the MedTech industry, specifically ophthalmology. Uh, Seems to have done well. Interesting for the semiconductor ultra flat mirrors that are being used by ASML lithography machines to bounce around light. 
and deliver the required flatness to bring ASML precision to the next level. COVID lows, da da da. Oh, this is very interesting. So he's asking, um, he's saying it's cheap. He's like, what are your guidelines, financial metrics when you consider buying a good business at a fair price? You bought Google last October and you say you like Disney at current levels. These are, were not very cheap based on basic metrics like price to sales, price to earnings, et cetera. When is a good time for a business at a fair price? I mean, I would not even have touched NVIDIA at 120 last October, but that would have worked phenomenal. Thanks for the podcast. So the one thing we were pounding the table on in um, fall of last year, besides Amazon and Alphabet, was semiconductors. Uh, so we expressed that through a basket, and uh, that worked. Uh, and the reason we expressed it through a basket is you have to know your framework. And there are some people that are really good at buying high-priced stocks, hoping that they'll go higher. Um, the vast majority of those people I've seen over the years blow up and die. There's one guy that I would trust to play that game for me. Uh, that's Ron Barron. Ron Barron can predict the future better than everyone else who thinks they can. And Ron Barron has stood the test of time. So if I had to allocate money to growth, uh, he would be the guy that I would do it. The rest of them, uh, take it or leave it is, is my view. Um, and um, so I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not. And uh, buying NVIDIA at, you know, whatever it is, that's not my game or buying Snowflake or buying this and hoping that they're, they're, they're because for every hit like NVIDIA is, there are 999 others that are roadkill that had the same promise and the same pitch deck and the same projections, which are as good as, you know, Kindle for your fireplace. I go for durable cash flows, predictable cash flows uh, for companies that are temporarily impaired. And the one thing about Google was they were compounding capital at 20 plus percent. Um, it was durable. It was sustainable. It was easy to know that they would come out of this unimpaired and they would get multiple re-rating over time once the market thawed. It thawed faster than we expected, but you know, that's, that's great. It could have taken three years. It took, you know, six months and that's the way it goes. Some take six months, some take three years, it's just the way it is. But they all work out when you have the proper framework as it, as it relates to, um, Disney, you know, the other thing is it's like, when you think about Warren Buffett and people say, oh my God, you remember when he did that $5 billion deal for Goldman Sachs and he did it in five minutes with no due diligence from his bathtub during the great financial crisis? And people are like, how could he ever do that? Isn't that reckless? No. He's like, the reason I could do it in five minutes is because of my two decades of experience, or at that time he had five decades of experience um, of seeing cycles and understanding the business. And when you're dealing with businesses that have durable long-term cash flows and moats and have been around for a long time, you can discern and you've seen enough cycles between temporarily impaired and permanently impaired, particularly for high quality businesses. And all I know is, you know, there have only been two other times you could buy Disney at a 50% discount um, in the last 30 years. And um, there's nothing, if anything, the 
forward outlook has gotten brighter for Disney than it was in 2009 when it went from 30 down to 13 uh, and then rebounded up to 130 within uh, five years. And then also the tech wreck when it went from 35 down to 11. In this case, it went down from 203 down to 80. So this is the third time in the last 30 years you can buy it at more than 50% off and you can't give it away. And it's always the same story. People are going to stop going to the parks. Parks are too expensive. The parks need to be refreshed. And now this time, one of their big growth drivers moving forward, which is they figured out a way to monetize one of the greatest content library, libraries in the history of humankind um, through streaming. And it's a nascent industry, but they're one of the big players and they'll figure it out. Uh, and it's going to be a monster for them down the line because all these smaller players are going to go by the wayside and you're basically going to have Netflix and Disney and then, you know, mini bundles and, pure, you know, content. And then as far as live sports, what's, what's more valuable than ESPN? So yes, ESPN may, uh, Disney may want to buy it for 50 billion. I think, I think Disney, uh, not Disney, Apple may want to buy ESPN for 50 billion. I think Disney would be a complete moron to sell it because ESPN is going to be another over the top and eventually they're all going to be rebundled and they have this brand moat that's and impenetrable. So it's the highest quality assets in their category. Yes, have they the woke and broke and nonsense stuff? Yeah, that's noise. Iger's a businessman. If he's gotten too broke, I, woke, uh, I can guarantee you he'll do Bible shows if he has to to get his EBITDA up uh, or more important metrics, uh, free cash flow, cranking again, uh, and that'll make everyone happy. So they'll do what they have to do. It takes a little longer. So, you know, in 2000. The tech wreck, it took about a year to bottom out. So we've been at this for, uh, the stock has been bottoming for nine some odd months. So maybe it takes another six months before you get some bottom and it starts to recover and there'll be some positive catalyst, maybe some asset sale or they get the Hulu deal and they show you, they give you all these projections of how it's gonna be great. And then it's you know back up to all time highs in the next three years. So you get a stock at 85 bucks, you sell it out at 200 in three or four years. That's a great IRR. Now, if you're buying the whole thing on leverage because you heard a tip on a bus and you're a moron and it goes down to 70 before it goes up to 200, well, then shame on you. But that's the framework. It's, you know, it's like saying, how could I be a great neurosurgeon in the next six months? The answer is you would never go to a 31-year-old neurosurgeon. Like if you got a brain problem, you're going to the 70-year-old that's been doing the same exact thing for the last... 40 years that knows exactly what he's doing, uh, or maybe, or maybe the 45-year-old who's been doing it for 20 years, uh, who's more up on the modern technology and knows how to use the technology better, but certainly has a wide body of experience and seen a lot of things and a lot of different scenarios and a lot of uh, instances to do it. And that's why the wealthiest people and the people that become my partners, they outsource this because they're the smartest guys in the world as it comes to real estate. They're the smartest guys in the world as it comes to energy, smartest guys as it comes in the world to private equity or, or roll-ups or however they've created their wealth in, in different situations. Um, um, so they just lay it off to other people that they know have the same experience in doing something for them and hiring that out as what makes them so great and better than, than all their competitors in their primary business, whatever that happens to be. So the answer is, it takes a ton of time. It, it, there's a soft skill to this. Um, you know, if, if uh, look, I go to the same golf instructor 
that many people you see on TV go to. As a matter of fact, I'm really lucky that one of them is going to be my playing partner in the member guest next Friday, so maybe we can pull off something great. Um, um, and yet, I don't hit, I, I'm not on the tour. Okay, so why is that? Because I've been doing it for a year. You know, yes, I've gotten down to a mid teens handicap, which is quasi respectable in a year, but not that exciting. Um, so another year, I'll be, you know, my goal is to break a 10 handicap. We'll see if that happens. Maybe it takes two years. But the answer is, it takes time, even when you have the quote formula, because you need to see a lot of situations and experience a lot of situations and do a lot of situations. So there's no quick answer. So I hope that's helpful. But one, they've got to have a moat. They've got to compound capital. They've got to generate free cash. We're not betting on the manana stories and, and hoping that we get it right. You know, maybe you get the next monster beverage. Maybe you wind up with the other 999 that thought they were going to be monster beverages and you got a donut hole. So we're not in the guessing game. We're in the free cash flow generation, compounding business, temporarily impaired. Can we get a double or triple in a reasonable amount of time? Keep our IRRs well above the market. Uh, make everyone happy, happy and call it a day. We don't get paid until our clients get paid first. And, um, and that's what we do. So with that said, I think we're at our last question. Um, and that is it. So we'll be back next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, make it a great one. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning in.